Getting revenge is an interesting topic. Uh, do we ever have a right to get revenge? Do we ever have a right to take vengeance, to find vindication? These are big, big topics that won't be resolved and settled in a 35-minute message, but this is the high theme of what we're looking at today in Esther chapter 9. Is there a proper time to get even? First of all, to open your Bible to Romans chapter 12 before we dive into Esther 9. Romans chapter 12, I'd like for you to look with me at verses 17 through 19. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 19. Paul writes, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I have that underlined and highlighted in my, script, in my text. If possible, so far as it depends on you. I love the way Paul writes that because sometimes you can do all you can do and you still cannot be at peace with certain people. But the burden is on you and me as individuals, in so far as possible, work hard to be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the New Testament seems pretty clear. There's not a time we ever take revenge. Well, Esther 9 is going to have a different perspective on that at some level. So open your Bible back to Esther chapter 9 or click in your uh, other version, your other way to get to the Scripture. If Esther is a story of God's providence and God's sovereignty for such a time as this, what sets up chapter 9 is that Haman had this plot to kill all the Jews. He hated Mordecai and he was going to destroy Mordecai and all his people. The tables have turned. This is a story wrought with irony. And the tables have turned, and the very gallows that Haman had, had, had built to impale Mordecai on ends up being the very gallows that Haman is impaled on. So the plot is turned and continues to twist. But there was an edict still in place. And that law was still enacted to take place to kill all the Jews. Now Mordecai is essentially the second most powerful man in the Persian kingdom. He replaced Haman, and we might say, and then some, because Esther, of course, the wife of King Ahasuerus, the queen, has got the ear and the heart of the king, and God has turned this whole situation on its head. But the Jews are still, the edict is still there. And so chapter 9 changes the storyline to see how God is going to overturn the tables. The text we're going to look at today, chapter 9 is a unit. It really falls into simply vindication and celebration. We'll look at the vindication part this weekend, next weekend the celebration part of the storyline. Verses 1 to 16 break into four, or three sections. The first 10 verses deal with the first day of vengeance where they go throughout primarily the citadel. Verses 11 to 15 go to the larger provinces and they rid themselves of all their enemies and then verses 16 to 19 introduce the celebration that's going to become the Feast of Purim. So that's the high view of the chapter. Let's take a look at it. Let me read the first few verses. Esther chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary. 
so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. Let me pause for just a second. This verse is a very long verse. It's a complicated verse to render. And I think the narrator is intentionally slowing down the story. So if you're reading it or if you were a hearer of it being read, it slows the pace of the story down. And you notice the irony and the flipping that's happening. Look at verse 1 again. The Jew, they hoped to gain mastery over them. But it was turned to the contrary. That's the phrase. So that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business, assisted or helped or lifted up the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now, the passage is a hard one to read in some respects. We live in a cultural context where tolerance and love and uh, peace at all costs and altruism and uh, can't we all just get along and if we were more loving and accepting and tolerant of other people groups, everything would be fine. And that's nothing new, uh, but it, it comes and goes with cultural tides. Uh, you might be more of a hawkish person. There's a time to go to war. You might be a pacifist. There's never a time for war. I have a, a phrase, I say we're all pacifists until war comes to our shore. And then we might change our perspective. When I was a kid in school, we had to know December 7, 1941. We had to know the day Pearl Harbor was, born, was bombed. And that's when, as Churchill talked about, the sleeping giant was finally awakened. America woke up from their inactivity and, and uninvolvement, and they entered the war with the Allied forces. And that turned the tables, and World War II is then one horrible war, not glorifying war. Some of us uh, don't even understand 9-11 much anymore. The, the, the uh, Pentagon, along with uh, the Twin Towers in, in, in Pennsylvania, all being attacked by terrorist uh, planes. And we've lost sight of, why do you stand in line at TSA? Why do we have homeland defense? Why has our travel life been wrecked forever? That's the way we view it, as best we know it. But when war comes to your shore, you have to do something about it or you'll be overrun by the enemy. Whether you're a pacifist or a hawk, that's sort of the tension in which we live. We're not taking the Bible or the cross and wrapping it in an American flag. I'm raising the tension of when do you take vengeance or vindication or revenge and when do you not? New Testament seems to te teach turn the other cheek. Paul's pretty specific, wasn't he? But here we're going to read about vindication. Let's sew it together a little bit and see if we can make some sense. To do that, keep your hand in Esther 9 and turn back to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Last time I'll have you turning today. Not quite Sunday school, but almost. Exodus 34. You think there'll be a day in the future when no one will turn in their Bible? They'll just click in their iPad or their Android whatever. It just dawned on me, there'll probably be a day no one will ever turn in their Bible but some old fat preacher like me. 
Turn in your Bible. What's a Bible? Exodus 34, look at verse 11. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But you are to tear down their altars and smash their pillars and cut down the Asherim, for, it, uh, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons to play the harlot with their gods. Let's go back in time a little bit and think about Israel. God chose Abram from Ur of the Chaldees to make him a nation. That people group becomes known as Israel, the Jews. They were a chosen people. They were given chosen land, also known as the promised land. That word has been so uh, sensationalized and marketed in our world. We don't even know what promised lands mean. I mean, the learning centers, promised land. The promised land was a piece of property across the Jordan. God told his chosen people, you're going to go in and occupy it. I'm going to give you a land of milk and honey. I'm going to protect you and provide all your needs in that land, but you must obey me. The blessing and curses motif was beginning. If you do this, I will bless you. If you don't do that, I'll bring the curses of Egypt upon you. So Israel was stationed. They were God's chosen people. God's chosen land, the promised land, would be their inheritance as they obeyed him and followed him. So into the Jordan, across the Jordan they go to fight these people groups. They are moving these people groups out. And, and liberal theologians and non-believers say, well, see, that's genocide. You're killing nations. You're killing people. God's chosen people, God's chosen land is an inheritance. And part of the reason they were to go in and kill these people groups were what we read in Exodus. Number one, they were enemies. They weren't going to have borders and live happily ever after. They would kill the Jews. So you can't be occupied by a foreign people group and draw a boundary and get along happily ever after. These are enemies. They would kill the Jews. Number two, they, because they were enemies who hated the Jew, they hated Yahweh Elohim. The story of the Bible is not just a story of man. The story of the Bible are, is polemic. From Egypt on, is Pharaoh God or is Yahweh Elohim God? Are the 8,000 plus idols of Egypt gods or is the one Yahweh Elohim the true and only monotheistic God? That's the story of Scripture. Is there one God or many? If there's one, it would be good to be aligned with him not the multiple false gods that we read all throughout Scripture. So they were enemies. They hated the people. They hated the people's God, the polemic, who is God. That's the final, the final straw in Exodus is either Pharaoh's God or God is God. And so he kills all the firstborn. That's Talionic. You think your son is a God? I'll kill your sons to show you you're not God. Fast forward, we kill God's son who's then resurrected to show power over death. So the story is seamless and multifaceted all through Scripture. So these people were to go in 
deal with the Amorite, the Hittite, the Ninevite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, so forth and so on. Ite just means people group. And the reason, finally, was that if you don't deal with your enemy, who's going to kill you if you don't kill them, if you try to ally with them or make covenants, you're going to be sucked into their gods and their immorality and their idolatry. And that happened in Saul's time. It happened during the monarchy. When the Jews are giving a sacrifice to Molech, the Canaanite gods, Baal. Uh, we were just in Greece and we saw a beautiful idol of Diana or Artemis out of Ephesus excavations. And uh, they worshiped this idol along with a multitude of Greek and Roman gods. And you can read about that in Acts 15, Acts 17, Artemis the Great, the whole story of Ephesus. And so these were, these were real issues that pulled the heart of the believer of Yahweh Elohim away into a pagan culture that involved immorality and idolatry. So all these things, as hard as it might be to swallow, God calls his people to be holy to the Lord. Period. He doesn't like other gods because there are none. He's the only one. He says, I'm going to take care of you, offer all provisions for you. I will fight for you. I will go before you. Simply obey me and do what I tell you to do, and it'll all be well and good. If you don't, these things are going to cascade, and they did throughout all of Israel's history. Now, back to Esther chapter 9. They're going in to fight their enemy. It's clearly explained in the text that Verse 2, for example, to lay hands on those who sought to harm them. So they're going to go after, and I will use the word vindication here, so the story is being reversed from Mordecai being killed and, and all the Jewish people being killed to Mordecai vindicating uh, as God's man, we might say, those who had plotted against them. Now, the passage continues in such a way that there's two campaigns. Just to give you a high view of the story. Um, first, they are allowed to go because the king allows Esther and Mordecai to execute the command to go in and kill all those who hated the Jew. And it's done in segments. One is we might, for just argument's sake or discussion's sake, in the province of the citadel. And then the other one is broader through all the cities where these enemies were still in waiting. If one day there is an uh, administration A and administration B, and administration A is trying to kill everybody, and administration B takes over, if you're in that administration, you've got a number of choices. One, you go underground. Two, you conspire to continue what Haman wanted to do, to kill the Jew. Uh, three, maybe you disappear, on we can imagine. But the tables have turned, and the text tells us, as we read in verse 4, Mordecai was great. His fame spread. If you were a friend of Haman, would you like Mordecai? Not so much. You want to kill Mordecai. So you have to go in and deal with your enemies, lest they're going to always be an irritation and they'll always be fighting you. So these are people that sought their harm. These were their enemies. And so Israel, under Mordecai's leadership in the provinces, is going to go and kill all these who would have killed them. Look at verse, um, drop down to verse 5. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying and they did what they pleased to all those who hated them. That's a hard verse to read, isn't it? Killing, destroying. And, and if we take it in isolation, it sounds like revenge. But again, keeping the alignment of the story, God's people in a situation were allowed to go in and take vengeance or vindication on those who would have killed them. 
Um, we have a lot of hints in the text that this wasn't a genocide. If you turn over, what we read this from verse 6 following, we read the ten sons of Haman, because if you don't kill Haman's sons, you can be sure Haman's sons are going to come after Mordecai and his family. And so in verse 10, the last part we read, they did not lay their hand on, hands on the plunder. Verse 15, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 16, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Why the repetition? There were times in the Old Testament when you were allowed to take the spoils of war. There were other times God put things under the ban, we might use illustratively, where you couldn't take those things. And so here, I think the one thing the narrator and God's story is telling us is this wasn't an extermination and genocide and take all their wealth and their livestock with you. This was simply dealing with the enemy in a vindication way, who would kill you if you don't address them, but intentionally leave the spoils there. This isn't about going in genocide and clearing out a people group. Also, it seems the language is pretty clear that they were only after the men. They weren't to exterminate the entire people group, as we read in uh, Exodus 34. It was simply the enemies and those who hated them. Uh, Thomasino writes, we should suspect that in most cities, Jews were a minority and could have been overwhelmed if the entire populace decided to attack them. Most people did not attack them because of the fear of the Jew and the power of their influence. The language shows a parallel to the conquest narratives, meaning if you go in, I'll bless you, and I'll take care of you, and I'll curse those who curse you. That's his, his allusion to it, uh, and perhaps he's right. So you've got to deal with these people that are under Haman's they're Haman's friends, they're Haman's alliance, they're Haman's visors, and now, of course, uh, Mordecai is going to do this. Um, Thomasino continues, the narrator made a deliberate allusion to Exodus 11. He draws a parallel between Moses and Mordecai and the Passover and Purim. And there's some interesting parallels. Scripture is full of switches and turns and irony and repetitions. So if he's right... Moses delivers Israel out of Egyptian slavery. God defeats Pharaoh's armies, and they begin their journey into the, into the promised land. He instituted Passover as a permanent memorial. Mordecai is going to deliver uh, the, de the Damocles sword hanging over all the Jews, and then they're going to establish Purim as a celebration to remind them. So perhaps the parallels are meant to illustrate that. Well, they did what they pleased is a hard phrase to read. It almost sounds like an unbridled revenge if they just went and, and did pell-mell. Um, Baldwin offers it's more of a free hand of retaliation. It's not meant to say they went in and just brutally slayed people under a genocide. The Jews took offensive action that was necessary, defensive, and justified. Necessary, defensive, and justified. Necessary, defensive, and justified. So when uh, World War II happens, when ISIS happens, when 9-11 happens, is it necessary? Is it defensible? Is it justified? We can't settle just war and pacifism here in a moment. We're all pacifists until war comes to our shore. When war comes to our shore, we expect somebody to do something about it. I promise you in 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed and people lost loved ones and half the fleet was sunk, America wanted somebody to do something about it. I guarantee you, 9-11, you may not remember it. When it happened, we wanted the government to do something about it. We didn't just say, oh, let them come in. They can kill us all. 
We're all pacifists until war knocks on your shore. And when war comes to your shore, you go, well, what are we going to do about it? We don't like to talk about these things, especially in Nashville. We're, we're an artist community, baby. We're some play some songs and make it all happy, right? Doesn't work that way in the real world. So how do you balance out Romans chapter 12 and what's happening in Esther? God's chosen people, God's promised land, and they were to live in a certain way under what we call a theocracy. God was their king. We don't have that today. Is America a Christian nation? Meh. You can debate that endlessly. There are those who say it is, those who say it is not. Um, at the end of the day, we are believers who live in a land. There's no one, two, three in the New Testament that tells us when to go to war or when not to go to war. But we can look at passages like Romans 12 that say never seek revenge insofar as possible, be at peace with all men. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We can read those passages, but don't, don't omit Timothy, 1 Timothy and Romans 13, where governments are put in place for our protection. They are to do good to those who live under them. The text does not say government is good. It says the government is to protect those who do good. So when you're driving with your seatbelt on, it used to be 10 and 2. It's what, 4 and 7 now you're supposed to drive? Because of airbags, I guess. 4 and 7, when you're driving the speed limit, when you're not inebriated or, or under the influence of drugs, and a police officer pulls you over, they may be checking for your registration or whatever, but 99 times out of 100, just have a good day. If you're speeding, you're driving under the influence, you don't have your seatbelt on, whatever it might be, and they pull you over, there's a moral set of laws in place that may warrant you a ticket or worse, right? Government is not perfect. Government is for our good. I don't know about you, I'm glad we have a military service. I'm glad men and women want to defend the freedoms that we have. When you go out for lunch today, you might go to five guys and commit a minor sin. You might go home and eat a you know, free-range salmon and a salad. You might, uh, you know, you might be one of these you know, super healthy, you know, uh, live food kind of persons that only eats vegetables and fruits and you know, things that organically were grown in peat moss or whatever. I don't know. God bless you. Um, you might have a sirloin steak. You might, you might eat something that was corn-fed beef. God help you. You, know, you might eat a terrible thing. You might get a giant drink today, a real a sugary, you know, like, I think 7-Eleven should make one with wheels on it. I really do. Just, just get ahead of the curve, you know, just wheel your, your Coke out. Um, you, you might eat carcinogens. You might open a Bible in church today. You might go home and watch a television show of your preference. You might go home and cook something on a grill. You might go to a music event tonight or tomorrow or next day. You might, on the 4th of July, have a nice meal and eat outside and shoot fireworks and, and have a drink. You might, because somebody fought for that, Don't forget it. People long dead and buried willingly fought for that. And we've forgotten that. I'm not trying to wrap America in a Christian flag. We are Christians who live in a country that has been extraordinarily, mercifully blessed way beyond what we deserve. Is it perfect? No, it's 
it's disastrous right now. And it may not get any better. But we're free agents as believers in Christ who live in a place. And we have the privilege to do those things because of what God has orchestrated, veil, providence, visible faith. Coming up on 4th of July, think about that a little bit next weekend. Now, for Israel at this time, as they look back on this, they're going to have a Feast of Purim. We're going to learn more about next weekend. And that feast was to celebrate what God did in an amazing turn of events in Persia, not in Israel. With displaced Jewish people who lived in a, we might say, a foreign land for our nomenclature. And God protected them, eliminating future threats because they went after their enemies, not women and children, men, those who hated them, those who sought their harm, and they vindicated an edict that was going to kill them had they not responded, had not God intervened. The high point of the narrative, you might say, it's about the survival of the Jew. Because through Abraham, God chose somebody to be a holy nation, a holy people after God's own calling and choosing so that the Messiah would come so you and I will be part of a holy nation, a holy people that he died for. As much as we hate and loathe violence, and I do, the crucifixion is the greatest violence act in history because it crucifies the God King for our own lusts and licentiousness because we want to live the way we prefer. Well, the text continues with these two accounts. Um, the ten sons of Haman are hanged in antiquity. Is, uh, this was not uncommon. You impaled or you put your dead in the entrance of the city as a warning. If you come into this village, this town, and you act out and you commit what we call a, a crime, this is what might happen to you. It's a real good preventative measure. And we should line the incoming streets with electric chairs or something. I don't know. You know this is what could happen to you if you commit a, a, a crime. Well, that's what the ancient world did. And you know, that's exactly what happened to your Savior. He was not crucified on a hill far away. Erase that bad imagery out of your mind from bad hymnology. He was crucified right outside the city wall, either at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or what's called the Garden Tomb or Gordon's Calvary two very likely locations. And depending on where they walked outside of the city, when you go to Israel, we'll show you this, where they walked outside of the city, where they would have crucified him and buried him. Because they want people to see those crucified bodies as you come in and out of the major entrances of the city. Same was true in antiquity here. So Haman's ten sons. Not only Haman hanged on the impaled on the pole, this is what happened to his family. Take note, Persians. King Hasuerus and his queen Esther have given the power to a man named Mordecai, and Mordecai is going to kill the enemy of the Jew. So be aware, when you come to town, that's what could await you. It's hard for us as people who are peace-loving, and can't we all get along, and can't we all just be tolerant and loving and embrace and all that? You know, it sounds really good, but it's a really bad theory. Because people are evil, sin is real, we're fallen people in a fallen context, and... There will always be challenges we must face. So, how do we navigate the whole passage? I want to read two quotes. One is from Joyce Baldwin. Old Testament use makes one thing very clear. That is, personal grievances were not to become the motivation for violent acts of vengeance. Personal grievances were not to become the motivation 
for violent acts of vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If somebody does something wrong to me, Paul says, insofar as possible, be at peace with all men. If somebody does wrong to some corporate group, to the body of Christ, to a church, to a school, to a business, then, of course, we have the whole idea of litigation in our culture. Are we to sue one another? Paul seemed pretty clear in 1 Corinthians we weren't to do that. But if you're sued, what do you do? You can't say, wait, 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 Paul said you can't do that. Oh, okay. We're in a fallen world, men and women. Insofar as possible, individually, I don't seek revenge or vengeance or even vindication. I'll leave that to him. But when a governing authority is entrusted by God, fallen, corrupt governing authorities, when they're entrusted by God to do something, that is how the system works. Whether it's communism, socialism, a republic, a democracy, or some invented dictatorship. Fallen governments, fallen people, fallen system. You know what it does? It drives us nuts. And it should drive us to the fact that there's only one way to do things, and that's God's way. And as long as we limber along the earth here, we're going to have these challenges. But I love Joyce's comment, not for personal grievances. And that's hard to do as a Christian, because sometimes we want to get even, we want to make it right. The last quote comes from 1797, Samuel Adams, a long time ago. Not, not the beer you drink, this is the real Samuel Adams. <laughs> that wars may cease in all the earth, and that the confusions that are, are and have been among nations may be overruled by promoting and speedily bringing on that holy and happy period when the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be everywhere established, and that all people everywhere willingly bow to the scepter of him who is the Prince of Peace. What great language. That's a good prayer. That's a good reminder. We are citizens of the earth, and we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And as long as we live in the citizenship of the earth, there's going to be messes and wars and litigation and fights and revenge and vengeance and hiring and firing and marital disputes and divorces and difficulties with teens and people who are estranged from their families and broken systems. As long as we live, Israel will never be at peace. They've been fighting their entire life and they'll fight until Christ returns. And even if the people in Israel aren't Israel, they're never going to be at peace. The world will never be at peace until the Prince of Peace returns. Again, that wars may cease in all the earth. That the confusions that are and have been among the nations may be overruled by promoting and speedily bringing on that holy and happy period. What great language. When the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be everywhere established and that all people everywhere willingly bow to the scepter of him who is the prince of peace. Father, help us as we navigate just the stuff of our own lives where we get hurt and injured, injustices occur, where we want revenge or vengeance or vindication. To know that personally we have no grounds for it. That we do live in a world in a context where vindication happens, where wars will be fought. The horrors of war are never to be glorified. We pray for our country. We pray for peace in the Middle East. We pray for your protection of this land we call home from evil, from wickedness, from terrorists, from those who seek the harm of children, men and women who are just going about their business. 
We don't deserve it, God, but we ask for your mercy. We ask you to give our leaders wisdom and those future leaders who will be elected in a few months wisdom as to how to govern this broken and divided country. May we of all men and women who love Christ and want to serve you be able to stand firm in our faith, to smile at the future, to not fear or live in worry or doubt or anxiety, which are all a waste of time, energy, and frankly, our sin. But to live in a way that we trust you, we live faithfully, no matter our circumstance, knowing that you are our God, you are our King, you are our Savior. You are not wringing your hands worried about the future. Remind us that you bought our life. It is not our own. It belongs to you. Encourage us this day, and as this next weekend comes, to celebrate not merely the country's independence, but our independence from sin and slavery to sin because of what Jesus has done. We love you. Help us to love you well. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.